Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13. And I'm going to read and preach verses 8 through 10 this morning, which are about love and law, as I mentioned earlier, love of neighbor and the law of God. And in these verses, we're called to love each other because love fulfills the law. How would you define love? Is it a feeling? Is it a commitment? Is it intention and desire or is it action and sacrifice? Does the object of our love matter? Or just the sincerity of our love? How should we define love? Well, as Christians, the Bible is the dictionary we should use to look it up. And one of the definitions we find in the Bible is that love is the fulfilling of the law. Love fulfills the law. So if you want to know what love is, read what the law says. If you want to know what love should look like, look at what the law says it should look like. Because love and law go together. And in these verses before us this morning, we're called to love each other because love fulfills the law. According to the Bible, according to the dictionary, according to the God who is love, true love for others fulfills the law of God toward others. That's what we're going to consider together from these verses this morning. But let me pray first, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Our God, we praise you because you are love. You have been from all eternity past within the three persons of the Godhead. And you are now, and you always will be love. And perfectly loving. And as we look at these verses together this morning... Would you teach us more of what love is? What love should look like according to the pattern of your law? And would you cause us to increase and to abound in love for one another and for all? By the grace of Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. And we pray in his name. Amen. Romans 13, reading verses 8 through 10. This is the word of God. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We're going to think first about the command to love each other, and then we'll think about the reason for the command, for love fulfills the law. 
Paul begins verse 8 by saying, owe no one anything, which doesn't mean never owe people because he just said in verse 7 that we should pay people what we owe them. Rather, this means we should never owe people without paying them what we owe them. It's kind of another way of saying what Paul said in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. So don't borrow money, but then refuse to pay it back. Or don't take out a loan and then default on the loan. Or don't promise someone you'll pay them and then withhold your wages or their wages from them. Those are the kinds of things Paul's getting at here. Leviticus 19.13, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, give it to them. Proverbs three twenty seven and 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Owe no one anything without paying them what you owe them is the idea. Sometimes we have what we might call quote unquote good debt like a mortgage on a house that will generally appreciate in value sometimes we have bad debt like for example credit card debt but either way we should pay our debts is what this means we should owe no one anything without paying them what we owe them we should make it a top priority to pay what is owed and we shouldn't allow lesser priorities to take precedence over paying what we owed We shouldn't live life in the red. We should live life in the black as much as we can. And one reason, it's not stated here, but we can piece this together from other parts of Scripture. One reason for this is for the sake of our witness to others. Because if we owe someone without paying them what we owe them, that's going to hinder our witness to them, isn't it? But if we're faithful to pay them what we owe them, that will adorn our witness. That will adorn our profession of the gospel instead of tarnishing it before men. So if someone lends money to you, don't make them feel like they're on the last hole on a mini golf course. And as soon as their ball goes in the hole, it's gone. It's never coming back. No, instead be reliable, be trustworthy. Return what they've lent to you. Let your financial dealings with others be an asset, not a liability to your gospel witness. Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything. And if you need help financially, if you're someone who needs help, perhaps even this morning, let me encourage you to talk to one of our deacons. You can look their names up in the back of the bulletin there. Uh, Any of them would be happy to talk to you about your need and to talk about how they may be able to help. But most of all, As you think about these words, owe no one anything, remember the words of Philippians 4, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Owe no one anything without paying them what you owe them. There is something we always owe, though. Paul says there in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Love is always 
what we owe. Love is the good debt we owe each other. Love is an obligation, a holy obligation that we are under with respect to others. And let me say two things here about this call to love each other in verse 8. First, let's consider who we're called to love. Who we're called to love. We're called to love, quote, each other, Paul says, which sounds like our fellow believers. But later in the verse, it says, one who loves another, and in the next two verses, it refers to loving our neighbor. And, and those words, another or neighbor, sound a bit more general. And if we take all of that together, along with the rest of what the Bible says on this, we can say that we're called to love believers and unbelievers with an emphasis on believers. We're called to love believers and unbelievers with an emphasis on believers. For example, Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a similar thought in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Or as Peter put it in 1 Peter 2, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. So who are we called to love? We're called to love believers and unbelievers with an emphasis on believers. And the primary way we love unbelievers is, of course, by sharing the gospel with them, by telling them the truth about God and his holiness and themselves in their sinfulness and Christ in his life, death, and resurrection for sinners and the response to the good news of Christ that we're called to, to repent of our sin and to believe in Christ for our salvation, to turn from our rebellion against God and to trust in his only son as our savior and Lord. That's the best way we can love the unbelievers around us, by telling them that news and calling them to respond in repentance and faith. The best way a doctor can love his patients if they have a life-threatening disease is to tell them they have a life-threatening disease, not withhold that from them, and to tell them also about the cure and how they can take it. The best way to love the unbelievers around us is to do the same for them spiritually, to tell them about the disease of sin and the cure of Christ. So we're called to love believers and unbelievers with an emphasis on believers. Secondly, let's consider how we're called to love. How we're called to love. And let's focus on how we're to love each other in the body of Christ, especially our fellow church members who we've committed ourselves to in our membership vows. And let me mention five ways, briefly, that we're called to love each other. Five ways. The first is consistently. We're called to love each other consistently. So we're to owe no one anything except to love each other, it says in verse eight. So we owe love to each other. And we owe love to each other always, don't we? We're under a holy obligation to love each other at all times. That's what I mean by consistently. 
We're not to be fair weather friends to each other. We're to be fair and foul weather friends to each other. We're to love each other in good times and in bad times in the body of Christ. We're to love each other when we feel like it and when we don't feel like it. Because sometimes we don't feel like it. We're to love each other when we don't feel very loving and when the other person doesn't seem very lovable. We're to love each other consistently by the grace of God. Not like the rain that waters the grass every once in a while, but like the dew that waters the grass every morning without fail. We're to love each other steadily and faithfully and reliably, consistently. Second, we're called to love each other biblically. We're called to love each other biblically. And I'll say more about this in a minute, but I think it's clear from these verses. Love fulfills the law, the law of God. The law of God shows us how to love each other. That's the whole point of this passage. Therefore, anything that goes against God's law is not really love. It's not truly love according to God's word. Remember, the Bible is the dictionary we should use to look up love, what it means. The Bible is where we learn what love is, what love looks like, according to the God who is love. We shouldn't get our understanding of love from the world. We should get it from the word. We shouldn't get our understanding of love from secular culture. We should get it from Holy Scripture. We should seek to love each other biblically. Third, we're called to love each other sincerely. Sincerely. Which we saw back in chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Remember that command from Paul in 12, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. We're called to love our fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, especially in our local church, sincerely, really and truly, from the heart. Our love for each other should be genuine, not counterfeit. Our love for each other should be real, not artificial. Our love for each other should be solid through and through, not hollow on the inside. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the kind of love we want to have for one another. First Peter 1, 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. As those who've been born again by the word of God We're to love each other sincerely from a pure heart. Fourth, we're called to love each other affectionately. Affectionately, which we saw back in chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. We're brothers and sisters in the family of God and we're to love each other affectionately as such. Like your dog, who loves you and is happy to see you, not like your cat, who's kind of bothered by your existence. 
No offense to the cat owners among us. I'm sure your cat really does love you. Deep down. It's just that cats don't always show it as affectionately and happily as dogs do. So think of your dog or think of someone's dog. We're to love each other with evident affection. Manifest affection. It shouldn't be that someone has to kind of piece together that you love them. It should be obvious in the body of Christ. We're to love each other with brotherly affection. Uh, Remember the Richard Baxter quote I mentioned a few times back. Every time we look upon our congregations, let us believingly remember that they are the purchase of Christ's blood and therefore should be regarded by us with the deepest interest and the most tender affection. Let's love each other affectionately in this church. Fifth, we're called to love each other sacrificially as Christ loved us, sacrificially as Christ loved us. Remember what Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four: a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Christ loved us sacrificially. That's how we're called to love each other. Not just when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient. Not just when it's comfortable, but when it's uncomfortable. Not just when it's cheap, but when it's costly. We're to love each other sacrificially as Christ loved us. And his love empowers our love. His love for us is what fuels our love for each other. So through Christ, we are able to love each other in these ways, consistently, biblically, sincerely, affectionately, and sacrificially. I would encourage you to take some time this afternoon, perhaps, and prayerfully examine yourself on these things. Perform a scan of your heart and life. Think about these five ways we're called to love each other. Do some repenting where necessary. Do some rejoicing, giving thanks to God. Do some praying. And in the strength of Christ, take a step forward in loving your fellow believers in these ways. So who are we called to love? We're called to love believers and unbelievers with an emphasis on believers. How are we called to love our fellow believers, our fellow church members in particular? Called to love each other consistently, biblically, sincerely, affectionately, and sacrificially. That's who and how. What about why we're called to love? Well, that's the question Paul answers in our second main point now. For Love fulfills the law. We're called to love, why? Because love fulfills the law of God. Look again at verse eight. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The reason we're to love each other is because love fulfills the law. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It has fulfilled the law by loving another is the sense. Because again, the law shows us how to love. Love is the train. Law is the track the train runs on. Love is the river 
Law is the river bed in which love flows. Now, when it says there in verse 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, you may be wondering, wait a minute, didn't Jesus do that already? Didn't he do that for us? Didn't he fulfill the law for us? Well, the answer is yes, he did fulfill the law for us, which is a glorious truth. He kept the law perfectly during his earthly life. He was born under the law, Galatians 4.4. He fulfilled all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. He did his father's will, Hebrews 10.7, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. And he did all that for us. He obeyed the law perfectly for us. He earned a perfect record of righteousness for us. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him for our salvation, his record becomes ours. His obedience is counted as our obedience. That's why we sing together with such joy. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His blood and righteousness. His blood atones for our sins and his righteousness fits us for heaven. He takes away our filthy rags and gives us his clean clothes. The robes of the righteousness of Christ are put on us permanently. So yes, Christ did fulfill the law for us and we should rejoice in that truth and rest in that truth. But it's also true that we now fulfill the law walking in his steps. But we don't do it for our justification. We do it as part of our sanctification. We don't do it to earn God's favor. We do it because we have God's favor in Christ. We do it because we love God and we love Christ who already did it for us. He blazed the trail Now we follow in his steps on the trail. He already ran the race and won it for us. Now we run the race looking to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So there is a sense in which we now fulfill the law. We now seek to keep the law of God. Like in Romans 8 verses 3 and 4, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Or think of the passage we looked at on the front of the bulletin. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's very similar to our passage for this morning. Later in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ kept the law for us. Now we seek to keep the law in his strength. He fulfilled the law for us. Now we fulfill the law in him. 
Now, what's this about the commandments in verse 9? Look at verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says at the end of verse 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, and then he says, for, in other words, let me show you how love fulfills the law, for the commandments, which he then lists, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall not do this to your neighbor, you shall not do that to your neighbor, is basically the same as saying, you shall love your neighbor. Love and law go together. We love our neighbor by fulfilling the law with respect to our neighbor. We love our neighbor by not committing adultery with or against our neighbor. We love our neighbor by not murdering our neighbor. We love our neighbor by not stealing from our neighbor. We love our neighbor by not coveting our neighbor's life or stuff. The commandments he lists are basically the second half of the Ten Commandments that are about our relationship with our neighbor, the first half being about our relationship with God. And he probably mentions some of the commandments from that second table because he's focusing in this part of the letter on our responsibility to our fellow man. But of course, our love for God comes first. And love for neighbor is really the outworking of love for God. Love for neighbor is how love for God expresses itself towards our neighbor. So if you're walking along loving God and then suddenly you encounter your neighbor, your love for God is going to show itself in love for your neighbor. And then he says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that's basically the same thing as at the end of verse nine, just stated negatively. So instead of you shall love your neighbor, here it's love does no wrong to a neighbor. Committing adultery with or against our neighbor Murdering our neighbor, stealing from our neighbor, coveting coveting our neighbor's life or stuff, those are all doing wrong to our neighbor. But love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love doesn't do those things to our neighbor. Love doesn't break those laws with respect to our neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of those laws. You see the logic there. Now, some of this at least, goes against the grain of our culture, doesn't it? The Bible says that if we break the law of God with respect to our fellow man, we are doing wrong to our fellow man. We are wronging them in some way. We are harming them in some way. But our culture has a very different view of harm and what is harmful And oftentimes our culture's view of what is harmful has us and our feelings at the center of it rather than God and his word. Some things may feel harmful, 
but they aren't actually harmful. And some things may feel good, but they're actually harmful. Committing adultery with your neighbor might feel good, but it's not good. It might feel like love, but it's not love. It's lawlessness. It's lawless, therefore it's loveless. There's no love in law-breaking. And if, if we do something that goes against God's law, and someone lovingly tells us that we shouldn't do that, they're not harming us, they're helping us. They're not hating us. They're loving us. Because the standard is God's law and not our feelings. If you're running toward the edge of a cliff and someone tells you to stop and turn around and run the other way, that may feel rather off-putting and insensitive and hateful of them, but they're trying to help you. They're trying to love you. They actually are helping and loving you. Because the word of God says love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Two more things I want to say and then we'll be done and move to the Lord's Supper. First, I think all this is super practical. Because this command is always applicable. No matter what kind of situation we're in, we're called to love others. If we're sitting around the dinner table, we're called to love the people also sitting around the dinner table. If we're playing in the backyard, we're called to love the people we're playing with in the backyard. If we're working on a project at work, we're called to love the people we're working with or for. If we're in a conversation after a church service, we're called to love the person we're talking to. No matter where we are or what we're doing, this command always applies. Even if we're by ourselves, we can love others by praying for them. This command is like your watch. It's always with you. It's always on. It's always right there. To love each other is a holy obligation we are under 24-7. But it's not a burden It's a privilege, isn't it? It's like the obligation you have to love your spouse if you're married or to love your kids if you have kids. It's not a burden, it's a privilege. It's hard work sometimes and you have to die to yourself, but it's a joy, it's a privilege. It's your pleasure. Being under this obligation at all times to love each other is not a prison. It's true freedom. It's the way we were made to live. It's the way we were redeemed to live. It's living like our God, like the three persons of the Godhead who have loved each other perfectly and perpetually from all eternity past. It's living like our Savior who loved his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who loved his neighbor as himself every moment of his earthly life. And to live like God, to live like Christ, what could be better than that? This is a glorious obligation. 
And again, it's very practical. So kids, if you're bored this summer, find someone to love. Look around and find someone to love. This command can give you, I think, a real sense of purpose in those times when you might feel somewhat purposeless or aimless or bored. Look at your watch, so to speak. Remember this command to love others and find someone to love. For all of us, if we're not sure what to do in a given situation, do what is loving. Do what is loving. Do what is loving according to the law of God. Fulfill the law toward your neighbor, toward the other person. Just pick a law that seems applicable and fulfill it in the strength of Christ. If you're not sure how to serve in this church, look around for someone to love. It's the best way to serve. There's about 200 opportunities to love. As many as there are people. Seek to love people consistently and biblically and sincerely and affectionately and sacrificially. So all this is super practical because this command is always applicable. Love each other because love fulfills the law. Second and finally, all this points us to our Savior. Our Savior Again, loved perfectly. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He was the embodiment of the law. The word made flesh was the law made visible. And he loved God and neighbor fully and continuously. He loved his family even when they didn't yet fully understand who he was. He loved his disciples even though they were often foolish and slow of heart to believe as all of us are. He loved his enemies even when they were nailing him to the cross. He loved Nicodemus even though Nicodemus woke him up in the middle of the night and surely he must have been tired. He loved us by shedding his blood for us on the cross. He loved perfectly and he continues to love perfectly for he is love. Our love is tainted like muddy water but his love is pure like a clear mountain spring. And as we seek to love each other we should keep his love always in view because we love only because he first loved us. And as we seek to love each other, which is hard sometimes, the secret, really, is to love as we've been loved. That's the secret. It's not a secret, actually. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So let's love each other, for love fulfills the law. Let's love as we've been loved.